We're in Daniel chapter 9 this morning as we continue our journey through Daniel. A few more weeks, and we will have completed it. But for this morning, we will be looking at Daniel's prayer, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and sufficient word. Daniel, chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent to Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, Seventy years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To us, to our kings, to our princes and to our fathers because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God, by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us, because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the words that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. 
Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's seek the Lord's blessing by going before his throne of grace. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would bless this your word, that you would make it to take deep root in our lives, that we would be affected by it, changed by it, encouraged by it. Lord, we ask that you would show us more of the Lord Jesus Christ in it, for it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this is a rather different text than Daniel, isn't it? It's almost like getting that breather from visions and monsters and beasts and angels and times. Although we will pick up again a vision and, or an interpretation next week. But here, this is not a story and this is not a great vision. What we have here in this first section of Daniel 9 is the heart and character of of Daniel. It informs us in everything that he has done, in his wisdom in interpreting visions and dreams, in his courage in the lion's den, in his ability to think and to be compassionate and persuasive in setting aside food that was proper. Here we have a man who is completely committed to the Lord God. This is a man who seeks the blessing of God, even in the midst of crisis. This chapter begins in the first year of Darius. That is, the the king, that Persian Mede king, who succeeded Belshazzar. If you're thinking about it in terms of chronology, this verse starts to happen right after chapter 5. It's right after the handwriting on the wall, right after the Babylonians have been wiped out. And Daniel responds to this great crisis when the newspapers are full of what will happen next and what will the budget be like and how will we pay for things and where will the army be raised from. He responds to it by praying. And he responds with a very interesting kind of prayer. It's not the kind of prayer that I think comes easily to our lips, at least not to mine. We tend to pray different kinds of prayers. And I think this morning we will see the great blessing that there is in learning from this prayer that was written for our benefit. And so this morning I'd like us to see three things about this prayer. First, I would like us to see prayer's foundation. What this prayer is founded upon. And then next we will see prayer's context. The context in which not only Daniel, but you and I are to pray. And then finally, we will see prayer's expectation. What does Daniel seek from this prayer? And I think it encompasses some things that come readily to mind. 
but others that perhaps do not. So let's begin then first by looking at prayer's foundation. What is this prayer of Daniel founded upon? The first and most obvious thing is that this prayer is founded upon God's Word. This shouldn't surprise us because in reality, prayer is an expression about what we know about God and what we know about ourselves. We can think about this even on the simplest of levels. If even as a child, we're sick, we don't feel well, that's something we know about ourselves and we take it to the Lord. If we are in pain, if we are suffering, if we are joyful, we know that about ourselves and we take it to God. What we know about God influences our prayer as well, as we'll see in some detail later this morning. But who He is, the fact that He is a God who hears prayer, affects the way we pray. The fact that our God wants us to hear certain kinds of prayers, that He wants our hearts open before Him, that He is a God who sees everything, affects our prayer. The fact that He is a God that can do anything, that He is omnipotent, affects our way of praying. Prayer is a way in which we are bound to God. We might think about it as the counterpart to God's Word. That's why the two are so intimately related. A simple but effective way to think about it is, the Bible is God speaking to us, and prayer is us speaking back to God. It's one of the reasons why We study our prayers and we use scriptural phrases and concepts and ideas to carry on that conversation. It's kind of like, I don't think anyone does this anymore, but when I was a kid, you could buy walkie-talkies. And they weren't digital and they weren't rechargeable. You put batteries in them and they had a big, long antenna and they had a knob with a couple of channels on them, two, three, four channels. And you would play with your friends or your brother or your sister, and you'd have that kind of communication. And about the first 20 minutes, you'd be doing, are you on? Can you hear me? Wait, what channel are you on? Are you on one? No, I'm on two. Hey, I'm on two. Okay. Uh, Now we can talk. See, it's getting on the same channel, getting on the same wavelength. That's part of what prayer is about. That's why it begins with God's Word. We need to know God's wavelength. We need to know God's message. We need to think God's thoughts after Him. And so, prayer is a mechanism that is a discipline to help us not only to get requests heard, but, to be honest with you, prayer is the greatest help to our theology. Because we're forced to think through how to pray. Think through the things that God loves, the things that God hates, the things that God desires. Prayer is founded upon God's Word. And so Daniel looked to the Word. Now, again, he's in the midst of this crisis, this change of kingdoms. And he's not just the corner newspaper vendor or restaurant owner. He is a high-level official. He is one of the highest-level officials in the empire. Usually that would mean a quick trip out to the woodshed and an axe or a hanging. But Daniel's not concerned about that. Daniel knows that God is in control, and this crisis is handled by him by going to prayer. But first, before he goes to prayer, he does something remarkable. He does a little Bible study. He holds his Bible study at home. During the midst of this crisis, have you ever felt too busy to study God's Word? 
too busy to pray. Daniel here is in the midst of a complete upheaval of the known world, and he spends his morning studying the book of Jeremiah. That's what he does. And he's reading through the book of Jeremiah, digging into it, seeking to find out what God will tell him. That's what we see here in verse 2. Daniel perceived in the books. The word, therefore, the books, is the same way you or I might speak about the scriptures. It's the same thing. And he reads in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 11, this. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all of the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Daniel basically reads what's happening in his very lifetime. And he looks and he says, Jeremiah prophesied 70 years. And he goes back to a calendar and he sees that the time for redemption is close. Now, I've warned you this before and I will do it again. The Bible speaks often in general terms. And so this 70 years is not meant to be absolutely precise. Part of the reason is no one even kept a precise calendar. They didn't have atomic watches. They didn't have calendars. They used the moon and the stars and leap years messed them up and king's reigns. And so if you could get within spitting distance, a year or two of something, you are in great shape as a historian of the ancient world. And so 70 years could either be measured from King Nebuchadnezzar's bringing most of Judah into exile, and that would make Daniel's time right now about 70 years, or it could be measured from the final exile. And in that case, you can go about 70 years to the rebuilding of the temple. But the point is, God had set and determined a period of time for exile. And Daniel looks at this and he says, God is completely in control. We're not here by accident. We're not here this long by accident. And God has promised to bring us back to the promised land. And look, we can see this is true because he has kept his word by bringing down Babylon. Daniel finds the first half of this prophecy true. And so he responds then, to the second half. But his response is a bit surprising, I think. He hears of the deliverance that is about to come. He sees it. And he doesn't do what we might expect. He doesn't get excited and jump for joy. He doesn't throw a party. The return to Israel party. Count down six months. No. Actually, what he does is kind of the opposite of what we might expect. He grows somber, and he goes to the Lord, and he asks the Lord for forgiveness, and he asks the Lord to teach him what to do. There's another thing that's interesting about this that I think we can learn from in our study of the Scriptures. The promise in Jeremiah 25 is completely unconditional. 
Nowhere does God say, if the Babylonians mess up, you'll be there only 70 years. Nowhere does God say, well, if you really get your act together, Israel, it'll only be 70 years. He says, after 70 years, I will wipe out the Babylonians and I will bring you back to the land. And the problem that we have often at the modern church is we hear that and we say, isn't that wonderful? Now I can sit down and relax. I don't have to do anything. God has promised it. He'll bring it about. I don't need to do a single thing. I'm just going to sit back and watch God bring it to pass. But Daniel does the exact opposite. The fact that he knows this promise is unconditional, the fact that he knows that God is true, it spurs him on to redoubled action. You see, he has already seen the first half of the promise fulfilled, and that causes him to be in prayer for the second half. This is the way we use God's word in prayer. The second thing that is a foundation for God's prayer is his character. I want to look at just two aspects of his character here this morning. The first is that God is holy, and the second is that God is a promise keeper. God's character that he is holy and that he is a promise keeper. You see, Daniel's prayer is affected by the fact that he comes before a holy, and in the old 19th century version of the word, awesome God, an awe-inspiring Notice how he prays. He turns his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. Now, why do you think Daniel does that? Kids, have you ever had your mom bring home a big sack of potatoes and rubbed up against it? It's that stuff called burlap. Or maybe you've done one of those... uh, Sack races, where you put a sack on and you hop to the finish line, it's that rough, scratchy kind of cloth. Daniel makes a shirt out of that and puts it on. And so we're immediately struck with, well, why would he do this? And he also starts to fast. So he he puts on uncomfortable clothing, makes himself hungry, and then he does something that I think seems very weird to us. He takes ashes and dumps them on his head. Why would he do this? Is he just like to look weird or like to feel weird? No. This is directly related to the way that Daniel views God. God is holy, so Daniel wants to physically, outwardly humble himself before the living God. God is holy. And that must affect our prayer. Now, does that mean you need to go home and take out the sack of potatoes and dump them on the floor and put a shirt of that on? No. But it does mean that the same God that Daniel serves, we serve. And we must be humble before him. We don't come before him flippantly, calling him the big guy upstairs. We don't come before him with no preparation, speaking to him in a way which we never speak to someone else. Forgetting words, thinking, being interrupted, playing on the computer, listening to music. No, we focus because God is holy and righteous and true. And that's why Daniel begins this prayer with a confession. Now, you may also think that odd, because our prayers often don't include this essential element of confession. 
Those of you that know the acronym ACTS, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, know that if ACTS were written as a bar graph, it would be like this. S, A-C-T. Because we are focusing oftentimes upon our own needs. We have been trained to think about prayer as our way to get our requests in front of God. But Daniel says, no, this is about communicating with God. And I need to remind myself and God that we have sinned. That I'm standing here in Babylon today, not by some quirk of fate, not because the king of Babylon is a meanie. No, I'm standing here today because the people of God have sinned against the holiness and the word of God. Over and over and over and over again. After he warned us and warned us and warned us. And still, we did not obey his word. God is holy. And this is a reason why God is to be feared. Look at verse 7. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. You remember I've said many times that this section of Daniel is now written in Hebrew as opposed to Aramaic, because Daniel is speaking to the people of God. And the people of God today in America need to hear this. If we are to be a people who seek God's holiness, we need to be more after confessing our own sin and God's holiness and less pointing at the Babylonians and the Persians about how ridiculously sinful they are. Not because they're not, but because we can only begin to affect our society We can only begin to have measures of change by having a deep relationship with God. Daniel turned Babylon upside down, and it wasn't because he was an effective speaker. And it wasn't because he was learned. It was because his relationship was with God. Do you desire to see your workplace, your neighborhood, your city changed? And you must develop a relationship with God and seek His holiness. You must know your own sin and not shy away from it, but to confess it to him as the one who desires to forgive. This is God's character. He's holy. But he's not only holy. Praise be to God that he is the promise keeper. Look at verse 5. Daniel says, We have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants and your prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers. Lord, you have come to us. You have spoken with us. You have been with us all the time. You are, in verse 4, the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. You see, God is a God to be trusted. We come to Him in prayer because He keeps promises. Perhaps you've had the opposite kind of experience in your own life. Perhaps your parents didn't keep their promises. And after a while, that begins to have an effect, doesn't it? Well, I promise you next week we'll go to the zoo. The next week comes and goes and no zoo. Why not? Well, we just couldn't get to it this week. But next week, I promise you, we will go to the zoo. Next week comes, goes, no zoo. After a couple weeks of that, 
children stop asking to go to the zoo. Because they know the promise isn't going to be kept. But you see, the exact opposite is true of God. God says, I will do this according to my word. And he does it. God says, I will overthrow the greatest empire in the history of the world in 70 years. And he does it. God says, I am in control of all the empires. Of bears and lions and goats and every other kind of beast you can throw at me. I am in control of everything. And I will always keep my promise. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Always keeps his promise. Perhaps this morning you don't know if you can trust God. You you haven't been able to trust your boss. You haven't been able to trust your parents. You don't know what to do. And someone says, well, you need to believe in Jesus. That's the only way to happiness, to safety and life. And you say, well, I'm not sure. I tell you this morning, God promises that whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Not whosoever and is wearing a coat and tie. Not whosoever and can memorize ten Bible verses. Not whosoever and is well connected. Whosoever believes. And that is a promise that God has been keeping for thousands of years. It is a promise that you can stake your very eternal life on. This is an aspect of who God is. God is a promise keeper. The interesting thing is, is that Daniel is praying that God would do what he promised. God has already said he would return his people. He would rebuild the temple. He would rebuild Jerusalem. And Daniel says, please, Lord, do these things. This is an effective way to pray. If you don't know how to pray, if you're struck, if you are downcast, if you don't know how to get the words out, pray God's promises back to him. You will be surprised how quickly you will be put in a proper and biblical frame of mind. And that will ease the burden of your soul. Pray God's promises back to him. But notice something else. Daniel did not pray to God because he thought if he didn't pray, God wouldn't bring it about. You see, sometimes we have that kind of attitude. We're praying for someone who is ill with a heart ailment, and we pray faithfully for them for four days, and then something comes up, and we forget the fifth and the sixth day, and we become all concerned. We've forgotten to pray. Maybe God will forget about them. Maybe they'll die, and it'll be our fault. Now, children express that out loud. Adults express that in here. And the Bible tells us we need to be far away from that, because Daniel prayed... Because he knew God would fulfill it. He knew it did not depend on him at all. And that's why he went to God. To do what he had said. You see, faith in prayer is not a feeling that God will make things come out right. Faith. Great faith. Is believing in the promises of God. It can come out in something very practical. Like evangelism. We do not pray because we believe that if we say the wrong word to someone, they will be damned forever. That's their only chance. And it's all on us, and we have messed up. No. We pray because we know it is in God's hands. And we seek His power and His blessing in the midst of our actions. You see, prayer depends on God's character as much as it does His Word. We pray because this is what God 
has promised. And so if you are struggling right now in a marriage, you need to know that God has promised to bind together husbands and wives, that they might be one flesh. Seek that promise. If you cannot get rid of a secret sin, then you must understand that God has promised in His Word to prune His people, to mortify their sin, to make them as white as snow. And so we pray that promise. This is the foundation of prayer. What is the context then of prayer? The context is two things. The first is God's covenant. The second is God's mercy. Do you notice I said it a little humorously at the outset that this part of Daniel is different than the rest of Daniel. And it's more than just the fact that there are no odd-shaped beasts. In this chapter is the only place in all of Daniel that the covenant name of God appears. You know the one in your Bible that's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D? Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, I am that I am, God's name that he gave to Moses. It only occurs here in Daniel, and it occurs eight times. Why is this? This is the only place in Daniel where there is great emphasis upon the law of God. Daniel calls it the commandments in verse 4. He calls it the rules in verse 5. He calls it the laws in verse 10. He calls it the law of Moses in verse 11. Why is Daniel doing these things? It's because this chapter, this prayer, is covenantal in its structure. Daniel is pleading not just the majesty of God, not just the sovereignty of God, but he is pleading the relationship that God has with his people. He is focused upon the covenant community. Have you noticed there's another thing that's different here in chapter 9? Everywhere else in Daniel, the Israelites are the good guys. They wear the white hats. They're the guys who aren't eating the bad food, who aren't bowing down to the big golden stick, who aren't blaspheming God. And everybody else around there is horrible and wicked and needs to be judged. But here, there's no mention of the pagans. Daniel doesn't excuse anything Israel has done by pointing out how bad the Babylonians are. And and the language here is, it's downright depressing, isn't it? We have sinned and done wrong. We have acted wickedly and rebelled. We have turned aside. We have not listened. We, to us belongs open shame. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed the voice. Over and over again, Daniel is pleading the relationship of Israel to God. And he's saying, we are in covenant with you, O Lord. We have a special relationship with you. You have given us your word. You have given us your law. You have given us your prophets. And we have failed. You see, Daniel knows here that his well-being is bound up in the well-being of the covenant community. Would that most of the church would learn that lesson. Big C. Your well-being as an individual Christian is bound up in the well-being of the church. As it proclaims the word of truth. As it lifts up the head that bows down, the knees that shake. As it serves one another. As it equips one another. And so as a part of God's covenant community, we must come together. We must acknowledge our faults. 
We must confess our sins. We must seek blessing from the Lord. And doing that, we must serve each other. You see, what Daniel is praying for here is an effect on the entire community. It's one of the reasons that we have this prayer. Perhaps you wondered why we have a prayer in the Bible. There there aren't a lot of long prayers like this in the Bible. There's one in Nehemiah 9. There's one in 1 Samuel. There are a few places in the Bible where there's a long prayer like this. And it's not just that Daniel would pray and bring about a result, but it's, it's that he would instruct and teach the people of God. Nehemiah 9, look at it this afternoon, is starkingly similar to Daniel 9. And I believe it's because the people who prayed that prayer read Daniel. They understood the prayer. They learned from it. They learned that they were a part of the covenant community and they needed to come together before a holy God and ask for His blessing. There's also not just the fact of God's covenant, but there's also God's mercy that is the context of this prayer. Because this prayer is about more than just saying, oh, woe is me. There are are plenty of confession of sin here, but notice also that Daniel describes the mercy of God. You see, Daniel doesn't sugarcoat what Israel has been doing. Because if you'll recall from chapter 4, we said that insanity, the definition of insanity, was seeking to rebel against God and the real reality of the world. If that's true, then the definition of sanity is agreeing with God about the reality of the world. Confessing that He is holy, that we are not, that we are bound to Him. And so it is filled with confession, a confession that seeks God's mercy. The irony here is, is that the perfect prayer of Daniel, as it were, is not focused upon us, but upon God. And so Daniel appeals to God's covenant love in verse 4. It is the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. The old King James sometimes translates that tender mercies. Covenant love is the kind of love that binds us to God in our relationship. It's not just merely a feeling. It is a commitment by God to that relationship. Look at verse 10. Even the sharp pricks that Israel got, the prophets that came, the voice of the Lord that came that they disobeyed was an expectation of God's mercy. Kids, Not so young kids. Sometimes, even adults, we can get upset because someone who's over us, a parent, a grandparent, tells us what we're doing is wrong, criticizes us, tries to point us in a different direction. And we wonder why this is the case. Why do they have to be so mean about it? But in reality, that kind of correction is a mercy. You see, your parents don't want you to go off down a road where pain and misery will be found. Same is true with God and His people. That's why He sends His prophets to tell them, I will judge you for your idolatry. You don't want judgment. You don't want idols. You don't want gods who are deaf and dumb. And you see, God, in His mercy, sends His prophets, sends His word to His people. And we see this in perhaps its greatest extent here in verse 15. 
And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand, and have made a name for yourself as at this day, we have sinned and have done wickedly. You see, Daniel pleads before God the greatest instance of redemption in the history of redemption. And he says, O Lord, we trusted you then. Help us to trust you now. We found meaning then. Help us to find meaning now. Lord, you redeemed us then. Redeem us now. And what a great blessing we have. You see, you didn't know it, but you have a gigantic advantage over Daniel. No, angels don't come and visit you by your bedside. No, you don't get interpretations of dreams and visions. But you see, Daniel pointed back to the exodus from Egypt. You can remember not only God's redemptive work in Egypt, but God's redemptive work in Babylon. And God's redemptive work in Palestine, at the foot of the cross, on Calvary. And God's redemptive work in Europe as Paul brought the gospel. And God's redemptive work today in China and in India and in the Sudan. You see, these are things that prompt us to prayer. We know the great history of redemption. This is the grace of God. God's mercy that is found throughout history. Finally, and briefly, we've seen prayer's foundation. We've seen prayer's context, a context that we should share. But we also should have the same kind of expectation for prayer that Daniel had. What was prayer's expectation? Again, I think it is two things. Prayer's expectation for Daniel was God's glory and God's grace. You see, Daniel expected to see God's glory. And he expected to experience God's grace. And that gave him great confidence in bringing his prayers before the living God. He desired to see God's kingdom grow and expand, not because he was worthy, but because God is worthy. Do you notice over and over again how he says, redeem your people, rebuild your city for your namesake, for your glory, that others might see, for your righteousness. You see, this is why God is gloried in our prayers. And I dare say, perhaps a reason why God would not answer our prayers if we prayed to him to raise up America so that we could once again be a great nation. And so that we could once again do the things that we could. Or our lives might be easier. If we are to pray for our nation, we are to pray that God would be glorified in our nation. Not simply that our lives might be better and our children might be spared discomfort by things that are on television. Or in the streets. But we are to pray that God's law would be followed. That His law might be known as pure and just and right and good. That's the kind of prayer we are to pray. And if we're praying for God's glory, then we never pray what I would call two small prayers. You know, we don't pray that someone would get healed. We just pray that they would not suffer so much. We don't pray that the church would experience a revival, but just that we would not be extinguished. But you see, if we know God's glory and we are focused upon God's glory, no prayer is too small. We lift up our prayers to the heavens that God might be glorified. 
And God answers this prayer, in a sense, immediately. You see, God raises up Cyrus. Another, go look at Ezra chapter 1 this afternoon. Ezra talks about the fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy and God raising up Cyrus that the exile might be ended. But Daniel doesn't know that. Daniel even has an angel to bring in the message, and he still doesn't know that because the angel is delayed. Think about that the next time you lift up God's glory and don't see an immediate answer. Prayer's expectation is God's glory, but it is also, lastly, it is God's grace. You see, there is hope because of the grace of God. We shouldn't get depressed with Daniel when he confesses all of his and Israel's sins. Because you see, where there is sin, there is hope. God sent Jesus Christ to die for sin. And so where our difficulties are caused by sin, there is great hope. It's not an illness that we don't know and can't get a handle on. It is something that Jesus Christ came and died for. And this kind of prayer then should drive us to see God's grace not only in our own lives, but in others. You know the saying, the family that prays together stays together? It's not because of some stickum, superglue quality of prayer. It's because the family that prays together knows God's grace and then allows them to forgive one another, to look over faults, to encourage one another, to see the grace of God in their midst. In conclusion, as believers in the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, the culmination of all that David pray, or excuse me, Daniel prayed for is found in the work of Christ and only in Him. He is the grace of God. He is the glory of God. He is the fulfillment of the covenant. He is the manifestation of God's mercy. He is God's living Word. He is the express image of the character of God. And so if you would cultivate all of this in your prayer life, seek first Jesus, for He is indeed God's holy, chosen Redeemer.